This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 4, Episode 10. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, brought to you by Excess Sites. Today is Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021, as of the recording of this show. And I'm your host, Riley Bowman, and today we have a special guest on the show whom I'm going to introduce formally here in a moment, and that is Varg Freeborn. And I'm uh, looking forward to an excellent discussion that we are going to be doing here today. And as uh, you'll note, we are jumping right into this, keep trying to keep it uh, fairly uh, uh, succinct because I want to make sure we save as much time as we can for our discussion. So today's episode sponsors are Excess Sites. Uh, they are, of course, our title sponsor of the podcast. Uh, but uh, I want to take a moment just to tell you that you know, I've been a user of particularly their F8 night sights for a couple of years now. Uh, it is uh, one of my favorite products on the market because it's a very simplified sight picture with high contrast. Everything I need to uh, put good hits on target in very, very quick speed. Uh, made in the made right in Texas, uh, made in the USA. They do everything themselves right in house. So that is uh, one of the other great things that I appreciate about Excess Sites, and uh, we're proud to be partnered with them. You can go to excesssites.com to check their full lineup of products out for yourself and uh, check them out. So appreciate your support of our sponsors. Our other sponsor today, this is our more more recent new sponsor for us on the channel on the podcast and that is elite survival systems i've actually been checking out their uh, it's called the stealth sbr bag hang on i got it here so i was looking for a bag that was uh, relatively low profile and didn't put out the whole tactical vibe and i've been really impressed with the uh, stealth sbr bag for that purpose so it's got some good organization pockets and uh, one massive pocket with Molly and Velcro and all kinds of different uh, ways you can attach and mount uh, your gear. So I've got in here a 300 Blackout SBR, really a pistol, uh, in that uh, pouch and it works exceptionally well and I've been just really impressed with the quality of the product as well as its low profile for my own personal needs. So guys, check out the Stealth SBR pack and other great packs at Elite Survival Systems. EliteSurvival.com is the site. And again, appreciate you guys' support of our sponsors that support us and make this possible. So with that, it is time. We're going to bring in our special guest here today. And there he is, the man himself, Varg Freeborn. Hello, sir. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, we've communicated about doing this for some time and it's uh it's taken a while to make it happen uh part of that i think is recently you you went through a a move you moved a pretty good distance actually from uh, one state to a completely different state in a different region of the country and uh moving sucks is all i got to say so <laughs> this last move it wasn't bad i only moved to uh basically an hour and a half um you know, the, the first big move a few years ago was from Ohio to Florida. And then ah. now I just made the move from central Florida to the coast where I really, so I got where I wanted to be, but it took like a couple steps to get there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Um, for some reason, I thought you still had stuff in Ohio or something, but uh, so you got that all done a couple years ago. Good, good for you, man. Florida is awesome. Um, I have fond, uh, fond, happy memories and thoughts about Florida. If it wasn't quite so far from my family, I'd be tempted to live in Florida. So anyway, welcome, sir. Uh, folks, some of you that may be Guardian Nation members hopefully are familiar with Varg, or at least his his work, because in our most recent Guardian Nation member box, we shipped you a copy of his recent book, Beyond Uda, that I have here, my own copy here, which is a an awesome book. Uh, Varg, you, you got on my radar a couple years ago when I read Violence of Mind, which was your first book and an excellent one as well. Beyond Uda really took that to a whole nother level and I think is some some really excellent work. I mean, your writing, I'm not going to say your writing was poor in Violence of Mind, but I think your writing was even better in Beyond Uda. So that's a good thing, right? We always want to get get better and improve. Um, and I thought that your approach to the concepts in this book, which I think are difficult concepts to, to break down the way you do, um, I, th- I think your approach was solid. So that's our intent here today, folks, is to is to basically talk about uh, Varg's book and you know the, the concepts of violence mindset, um, UDA, okay, and what that is, the work of Colonel Boyd and all that. A little bit, we'll touch on that, I'm sure. So, Varg, but first, uh, I'd like folks to kind of get a sense of who you are and your background and how you ended up where you are today, especially writing about such, mm, what's the word? These are not hard skills in that we're not talking about shooting and application of violence so much, which are a little bit more defined. We're talking about some stuff here that is not quite as easy to put a finger on it, so to speak. So, uh, curious about your background, if you'd share some of some of that with our listeners. So, you know, currently I am obviously an author and an instructor in self-defense and violence education, uh, focusing on lethal force and, and weapons, firearms primarily. Um, in that vein, I pretty much stay these days with just force on force work using some munitions and, and protective gear for that. Um, on, on the side of that, I work with clients and athletes and strength training and, and the physical part of it, the development of the person, because I think that that is, you know, also a very important component in the self-defense and daily living. Um, and then on top of that, the mindset part of it obviously has to be done through the writing part. So that's how you arrive at the writing because there's you can't really have a class and and apply mindset in a in an eight hour class. It's just not it's, it's not something that you can accomplish. You can do a lot of um, you can make people think and 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 make them make decisions during classes, which is what I try to create. But uh, it's still requires a hundred or 200 pages of sitting down and looking at deep concepts and understanding kind of 
what goes into all of that decision-making process and then understanding like the person that you're going to run across on the streets that may have a particular background and particular orientation, like I discussed in both books, um, and then understanding that and understanding what creates that orientation. Um, and I think that that has to be conveyed through writing. So that's how I got to that point because there was a gap and I wanted to fill it. Now, for my past, the reason that I can write about these things and teach these things, you know, I grew up in a very violent environment, very violent family. Uh, my, my childhood and adolescence was traumatic and full of events that definitely shaped my orientation. I would say that, uh, that, that capped out, um, at, at the peak of, um, creating that orientation, uh, was the, the five-year prison sentence, obviously. So I was convicted in a self-defense case and, um, I had stabbed a guy a couple dozen times and got convicted and fought the case and fought it down to a five-year sentence uh, and did the whole five years. And then I was released. I continued to fight my case after I was convicted, served my entire sentence, and released. I continued to fight because I just firmly believed that, um, you know, I was that I had not initiated the contact. I had not initiated the aggression. I didn't antagonize it. You know, he came looking for it. He sought it out. He repeatedly came to find me intentionally. He admitted these things in court. And I just thought it was BS that, you know, I had to have my life ruined. And this guy had, you know, uh, gotten away with that. But in the end of it, they didn't do anything to the conviction. But what they did was something very interesting. Um, and it's very rare, especially for a violent felon is they restored my rights. And that includes the right to own and possess firearms. So I have not gotten an expungement or any violent uh, felony removed from my record. I'm still a convicted felon, but I've held concealed carry license in two states now. I currently hold a concealed carry license in one state. And I was also um, certified through the Ohio Peace Officers Commission in Ohio to carry a weapon on on duty as a security. So I've held, you know, several certifications through states. Uh, I've trained through law enforcement agencies and did some work in the, the gun industry, which led me deeper into that product development and things like that. And so I was pulled very quickly into the law enforcement world. Once they realized my background and my capability of coming in and teaching and doing, you know, things with firearms, which is very rare and they trained me up, you know, so I've been to breaching school, thermal, ballistic, mechanical. Um, I took explosive at another location. I've done uh, um, executive protection for law enforcement uh, training. I've done hundreds and hundreds of hours in CQB training. I've been certified up to a full team CQB instructor with um, the Alliance uh, police training facility in Ohio trained with several facilities and several different systems. And, um, and so that's, that's a broad range of experience to put into, you know, into a perspective that you can convey to people, right? It's very, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot like being on both sides of the kicked in door, right? It's, you've seen, I've seen the inside of prison. I've seen the inside of drug houses and I grew up in a drug house. I grew up in a, you know, 
a drug dealing criminal family. Um, I've been to prison and now I've, you know, trained with SWAT teams from several different cities in the country, several different metro areas. Uh, and I've trained with, you know, many, many different guys on different backgrounds, both military and law enforcement. So there's a whole range of, of perspectives there that cover the very large and um, complex uh, issue that violence is because nobody can know violence as a whole. Everybody only sees a piece of it. You know, like uh, the guy who goes to the military, goes to war, doesn't experience violence the same way as the guy who goes to prison, who doesn't experience violence the same way as the guy who's, you know, doing high risk warrants in, in a busy city or something. So um, I've touched a lot of those different pieces of knowledge and put that on top of my experience. So that's what brings me to where I'm at and why I speak the way I do about these topics. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing that I've heard some people throw out occasionally, you know, when talking about such things and, and, you know, talking about violence mindset and, and stuff that, uh, they would say that, you know, that we should, uh, the word we should be careful who we listen to um, because they maybe are not um, professionals you know in the, in the in, as far as like in areas like psychology and and that kind of thing and and there was a there's a section right in the very beginning of your book that I appreciate you you hit on this right right away kind of addressing as I guess the uh, uh, the what's the word the I'm having a momentary lapse here, but uh, um, anyway, let me just read what you wrote here. And because uh, I thought this was really, really well, well said. And you say, here's my disclaimer. I am not a scientist and this book is not full of data driven science. I caution you about the popular trend of only valuing science in the study of training and violence. The study of violence in the ways that we need it, need it studied has not been done in any scientifically significant way. I'd have to agree with that. Violence is too widespread, too random, and too often not reported or is reported inaccurately. And let's not forget that there is no way to quantify the characteristics of a mindset reliably. I guess that kind of goes back to what I said in the beginning about, like, we're not talking about really hard, well-defined concepts here so much uh and, and i mean your whole point about violence is widespread and it's random and it it happens fast and it ha you know there and i know this as well as you know i mean we we cover we do a whole episode every month on this podcast talking about where we share the most recent examples of civilian uh dgus you know like hey in uh <clears throat> Columbus, Ohio, this last week, you know, here's this, this situation that happened, you know, and I know how infrequently stuff is reported. So I, I just kind of wanted to, I guess, get you, you know, I was curious if you would elaborate a little bit about your thoughts on the challenges of studying violence and why um, it's difficult to quantify it in a meaningful way from a scientific perspective and, and kind of lead from that into you know, how your own personal experience has uh, influenced your, your understanding of violence. <clears throat> so first of all, I'm not a scientist and, but I do understand 
what the term scientific significance is, right? And that's, you have to, in order for a study to reach, um, you know, reliably accurate results that you can gather any type of, you know, useful information from, there has to be a certain level of scientific significance. And that is not present, as I said in the book, that's not present in the study of violence. Um, what I mean by random, I don't, I'm not saying that violence is random in the sense that every attack is random. And it's going to happen. You know, what I'm saying is when you look at it as a whole, it's a very random, it's a random collection of events that are vastly different and vastly complex on multiple levels. There's interpersonal violence, domestic violence, random uh, stranger violence. You know, there's violence that has to do with drug activity. Violence that has to do with, you know, just a multitude of, of things in, in our society that violence is connected to. And many of these things are not related to each other at all. So violence is it overall a very random thing to study. Um, you've got violence in a cop shooting, you know, a, a suspect, you've got violence in a suspect shooting a cop, you got violence in, you know, someone beating their children. Like there's so many different things happening. So to study it as a whole, it's, nearly impossible and i don't think that there's any way you could really reliably gather scientifically significant data to talk about specifically the creation of um a mindset or or an orientation that is driven towards or can acclimate well inside of a violent event or environment uh i just don't think it exists and yeah. there that's the problem with the the self-defense, especially the firearms industry now is like there's so much focus on shooting, so much focus on on the hard skill and shooting, 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 you know, and that's a very quantifiable activity. Like you go to the range, you put a target up and you pull the trigger and there's a hole in the target. It's it's really clear, right? It's it's trackable. It's quantifiable. You can, you know, look at progress over time. You can create scientifically significant data points from, you know, enough visits to the range. Like it's something that's very trackable. And, yeah. and so they, they fall into this, like, um, and, and it also is a status symbol, unfortunately in the shooting world. Like if you're fast and you're accurate, then you're like a, 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 a guru on violence shooting. Right. Um, which the two don't necessarily go together. Um, but, so we get stuck in these trends about, you know, well, you're, you know, if you say, well, you know, a knife is viewed as brutal and it's not as, um, you, you will not be looked upon as favorably in a self-defense, um, legal situation, having used a knife multiple times on a, on an attacker as you would in, um, a situation where you have a gun and now this is all other things equal being in a self-defense friendly state and all that type of stuff. Right. Uh, and then somebody will say, well, your evidence is anecdotal. Well, all the evidence is anecdotal. Like there's no, like there is no existing study that's, that shows how many people got arrested for a knife, how many of them were offense or defense, how many of them were convicted from defense from a defensive uh, legal standpoint that doesn't exist. Right. So yeah. all we have is anecdotal evidence. So you have to go with that. And I would rather listen to um, a cup, like as many guys as possible that has actually done the thing or lived through the, the, you know, the, the actual 
event that we're talking about than to just sit back and say, well, your, your evidence is anecdotal, so it doesn't mean anything. And I'm going to sit around. I'm going to hold on to this belief that I have until scientifically significant data shows up. Well, it's never going to show up. It's just, it's not going to happen, <laughs> right? Like, it's just, we might someday see that, right? But at this point in time, especially the way the system is with reporting and things, you don't even know in a, in a knifing situation who's defensive and who's offensive in a, in a, in a given legal case, right? Um, and then you, you, whose word are you going to take? You're going to take the the legal defense for the for the um, defendant, or are you going to take the prosecutor? Like you have two different versions of a story going on. So to, to even make a quantifiable data point from that story, whose story are you going to take? Or are you just going to look at the conviction? And if you look at the conviction, was it really a good conviction? Because I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of convictions that are just not good convictions, and there's a lot of people that can't you know, effectively defend themselves due to lack of having money or poverty or what have you. Um, and so I don't think it's, I don't think it's accessible information. So we have to look at it from a non-scientific viewpoint to understand it in its complexity. That's, that's my belief. Mm. Yeah. No. Uh, and I appreciate you uh, adding some additional context and clarification to, to that. I, I think that's, I, th- I think that's an important part of the discussion, honestly, um, because it, it, it is such a, you know, we can study things that can be demonstrated repeatedly. And to your point about violence being random, like that, that is one of the aspects about it is like every situation is unique. And so it's so like, that's part of the big challenges of studying it scientifically is we can't set things up in a, repeatable controllable way to actually study it in, in you know meaningfully it's all anecdotal because yeah. every single person that has an event has a different antagonist a different trigger a different set mm-hmm. of circumstances that brought it about like there's just no yeah there's no uh continuity between events that's going to be really trackable like that yeah yeah so we know the title of the book beyond uda um and in kind of in a jokingly joking manner here, we've got uh, Hanny who's uh, viewing on Facebook. He he says, "Hey gents, there's no such thing as Uda. It's O O D A, referencing Colonel Boyd." Um, if you look in the book, it's all separated by periods throughout the text. The only yeah. where the only place it's not is on the cover because it's the cover. Yeah, yeah, no, and I get that. But look, let's let's talk about O O D A. Uh, your understanding of it, why it's relevant to to our conversation here today, and 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 how do you think uh, Colonel John Boyd arrived at you know making this uh, discovery, if you will? Well, there were three people that worked on those concepts. It was Colonel John Boyd, Chet Richards, and Chuck Spinney. Chet Richards and Chuck Spinney were his two associates and close friends, and they had a lot to do with helping him really hash out these concepts over uh, like a 30-year period. Um, And I've spent a a little bit of time, I would say a considerable amount of time, talking to Chet Richards about that very thing. And, you know, it's not that important to me to understand really how Boyd developed these concepts uh, because I'm not 
in it for the historian parts of, of the story. Um, I'm in it for the concept and where the concept is going in my perspective. Uh, but I would say that, you know, and I've had this, I've had people who claim to be gurus on, um, on Boyd and OODA and they would point back to, well, you have to understand the, the aerial attack study from the sixties, if you want to know. And so you could say that a lineage took place over 30 to 40 years of Boyd developing these. But I think if you really look at Boyd's work, which I did extensively, and I think that the first section of beyond Uda demonstrates that, that you see that he really got away from what he was working on in the beginning, in the, in the early to mid sixties with uh, aerial attack study, things like that shoot forward 30 years into the nineties. And he's almost all focused on orientation now. And, his writings, he never wrote a book and he never produced anything that really explained his, his positions. Uh, in that sense, he's very enigmatic. He's not really, um, he, he, his, his papers that are one could argue that they're mostly incomplete or lacking context in many ways. They're, they seem to be more guides for him to, uh, used for his lectures or developing for his further for his future work like everything was like um, uh, pieces of a puzzle for him for some future you know ethereal goal that he was chasing um, and I think that had to do with it, well evidenced by his work and his emphasis in his own words calling orientation the schwerpunkt of of the whole deal right uh, and the development of the new complex Uda loop diagram, which was like all the the multiple loops and things like that. And I've had it argued that he didn't do that. It was Chuck Spinney's. But if you ask Chuck Spinney, which I did, Chuck says that was Boyd's. He just helped him draw it out. Uh, Chet confirms that, right? So the the truth is that Boyd was just going more and more into this and also which I didn't touch a lot on, but the um, creativity and destruction or order and chaos, right? Like he, he was going a lot in that direction as well. And he was trying to tie together, I think where he would have went with it by reading his papers and reading his work, especially into the nineties. I think he was going in a, in a direction working with creation and destruction and, and orientation and putting those together in a way that was dealing with basically the orientation developing in a way that you can utilize the creation and destruction process to actually um, to synthesize new information in a better way and, and see the environment without distortion and things like that. So uh, that's what I'm getting from his work. But like I said, it wasn't complete. Now for me, I don't teach the the OODA loop as everyone calls it. Um, I don't focus on it. I don't teach it. I don't find it particularly useful for you know the things that I'm doing. Um, what I do find useful is orientation, uh, and I think that orientation is the key. I think that Boyd believed orientation was the key. Um, Chet Richards has also told me personally that Boyd really believed orientation was the key and 
it's just the basis of of all of the other things. So the way that I like to put it is observe, orient, decide, act. Those are the the that's the acronym. Observe, observe, orient, decide, act. And I've heard it explained and not for a long time. And I hope everybody has corrected this by now, which probably not, but some people have said um you observe an attacker and then you orient yourself to the threat like you physically turn your body towards it right and and it can't be farther from what is really trying to be conveyed through that that uh concept um it's orientation is it's who you are it's what it's the only thing you bring to the fight everything else happens in the moment you observed you decide and you act in the moment orientation is what bring what you brought with you that makes all those things happen um and if you have you know uh biases that are not addressed right that's gonna you're gonna have information come in through your eyes and then you're going to see what you want to see and not what's really there and people are like well how's that possible well go to a shoot house class and watch how many people roll into a room and shoot no shoots when you look clearly at the target and there's no gun or there's a badge or there's a cell phone but there's no clear threat there and they get shot up because you had a bias in your head that you went around that corner you were expecting to see a bad guy and you told yourself you've seen a bad guy when you actually didn't that's really what happened that's why you shot him right um and you you know we can say you didn't take the time to look and you just shot but that was that was a fear reaction because you were afraid it was a bad guy and you didn't take the time. Look, so it's the same result. Either you were afraid it was and you're just going to shoot him for good measure or you looked and you saw what you wanted to see. But that's exactly what we do. We do this in all aspects of our life too, um, where we BS ourselves about what we're really looking at. And your orientation is your collection, and Boyd called it the repository of your your genetics, your cultural inputs, your value systems, your experiences, uh, you know, the, all of those things that, that those are what drives your decision-making. So if we talk about mindset, what makes, you know, what makes us make the decisions we do? It's all of the things that color the mind that you have inside of your skull, like all of the things that you've experienced and the cultural inputs, like, you know, you make a very simple example if you have someone who was raised their entire life in a peaceful environment to believe that violence was bad, no matter what, it's just bad. There's no place for it. There's always a way to solve things without violence. So you see these people are like, if somebody broke into my house and they had a gun, I would offer them a cup of coffee and try to talk to them about their childhood. Like this is the kind of cultural input that um, is going to make them make a decision in the heat of the moment. Right. And that's, that's, part of the decision-making process, the synth- the synthesizing, they see information coming in. Someone's in my house. I see them. They have a weapon. This is new information coming in. I synthesize that with information that I already have. Like, have I been here before? Has this happened before? How did it turn out? If I didn't have this happen to me, have I seen it happen to other people? How did that turn out? So all these, like this really fast processing goes on. And you come out with a decision based on your experiences, your observations, your cultural inputs, your own value system. Do you put human life up here no matter what? 
or is your valuation of human life on a sliding scale? Um, all of those things determine what those decisions end up being. Uh, and that is your orientation. That is just completely makes up it, that, that it is like the everything of your decision-making process. Um, and I just think that that's where, as evidenced by his work later in life, that's where Boyd was focusing. And regardless of what Boyd was doing, that's what I focus on in my teaching and my writing. Yeah. It, would it be accurate to say that orientation is a filter for what we then decide and do? Uh, it, it A filter, in, in essence, removes things. So I don't think a filter is a, is a perfect example. Mm. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's it's a creation point, right? So mm. there's a, it's, it's a point of creativity. And sometimes in that creativity, we have to have a destruction in order to have the creation of something new. So I, I don't think a filter is a, 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 a full example. I used, I used to use that and I had a friend correct me and I was like, oh, you're right. Yeah. Mm. Filters like take things out and there's actually things that get added in. It can be what Chuck Spinney calls um, incestuous amplification where you're, uh, your, your thoughts are having sex with themselves, right? Like there's not, there's not, you're not allowing outside input in. Uh, and we call, um, you know, we call this, uh, biases and, and, and whatever, but you have this, um, situation where you're not allowing new information to come in and, or you're getting information to come in and you're not letting it get through your, um, your, your orientation process, your decision process, because you're not synthesizing it properly because you have a bias that stops you from seeing it. Now, a, a good example of this would be um, racism, right? If, uh, if you see a person of a certain color, you, you react a certain way considering them at, at a certain threat level just based on what color they are, not their behavior, not their clothing, not their demeanor, not their physical body language, none of the, the real indicators. You just put them there. So if they do make some kind of move or do something, you're now synthesizing off of a corrupt process, right? You, you have incestuous amplification going on in your head. You're not allowing what's really happening to be synthesized with what you know that is, you know, based on truth and not like some personal, you know, values that are misguided, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because cultural inputs and values, uh, they can be separate. They can go hand in hand, but they're going to be the same thing. So if you have like uh, economic um, disparity and you have racial disparity and you, and you have dislikes for based on those things, you know, that's going to be, um, that's going to be a problem in that, in that synthesizing part of the decision process. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that, it's too complex to say it's a filter or it's a creation point or it's a destruction point. I think that it's, it's simply a process, right? Mm -hmm. It's a process where creation and destruction synthesizing take place. And that's how our decisions come out on the other end. That's mm. yeah, a very interesting clarification. I, I, that's actually really like my mind, like the gears up here kind of spinning a little bit, trying, you know, like, there's a lot of different 
directions I feel like I can go exploring some of that thought. You referencing the synthesizing uh, that you've uh, referred to, and there's a whole chapter in your book called Observation, Analysis, and Th- Synthesis. Would you say that? I mean, and, and we kind of touched on you know how number one, violence as a thing is is somewhat difficult to to study, especially scientifically. Would you say that the ability for us to, through this orientation process, to make connections with other, um, other parts of our, our, I guess, our own frame of reference, that this, that, I mean, that that's an that's an important piece of all this, isn't it? The, the ability to, to, to you know, you're you're reading a situation. You're looking at a situation. You're trying to figure out, you know, what's taking place, what reality is, and, and what that means for you. And it's its own unique situation. But maybe somewhere else in your background, in your in your experience, in your frame of reference, uh, you're able to say, "Oh, wait, this 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 cue, this thing, this event, whatever it is, it reminds me of." this other thing that I've experienced and therefore you're able to, um, to sort of build off of that. Is, is that kind of like, are, am I, are, am I on the right track as far as understanding why that synthesis piece of this is important? Because I mean, for instance, if every violent act was, or at least to a large extent, if they were largely the same, that would mean that we we wouldn't we wouldn't have to look um, for answers. We wouldn't, you know, it would be very predictable. We we would get very very much stuck in like, well, when this happens, I do this, and it works the same way every time. But the fact is, is violence isn't always predictable, isn't consistent, isn't repeatable. And so we have to have this ability for the for creativity and problem solving and synthesis to occur. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And creativity is is a huge part of it because it's not predictable and it's not choreographed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a lot of there's a lot of instructors and and practitioners that really act like it's choreographed because they they spend all their time doing choreographed things with semi non-compliant but mostly compliant hmm. uh, uh, attackers but in in reality y- you have to be creative and it, we can look at you don't the training is a uh, an enhancement of the synthesis part and it's it should be an enhancement of the creativity part, but it doesn't always turn out that way because if training is based on katas and choreography, it's not really producing the creative thinking process that you need. Um, that's why I try to really push complex scenarios that give people multiple options, overload them with the options that they could take, and then they're not sure which one to take. And I say, that's exactly what it feels like in real life, man. That's mm. exactly what's going to happen. So you got to get creative and you got to be able to look at a situation and hurry with, you know, this ability to take the components of, of the information coming at you and synthesize them into some type of an answer or some type of a solution. Um, now, 
I'm not going to get political and I'm not taking sides here, but I'm going to point to a particular fight to give an example of this. We had um, a 17-year-old, largely untrained kid with a rifle in a riot situation not too long ago Mm. that demonstrated um, adaptability and creativity without extensive training and years of experience, right? Uh, And one particular point where that really, um, you know, was exemplified was when he was on the ground and was able to, from the ground, position the rifle without being able to use the sights and use all of the mechanisms that were taught in, you know, fundamentals of shooting. He completely surpassed all of that, but was able to create positions and responses that ended up you know, defeating his attackers quite effectively, getting him back to his feet and back onto the street and down the road. Now, again, I'm not arguing the political or legal parts of that, that they're going to work that stuff out in this trial. But I am saying that that kid exhibited an extreme amount of creativity. And in the moment, he put together things that based on what he had, he did not have at his disposal the fundamentals of shooting. He did not have a proper mount of the rifle. He did not have a proper sight picture or sight alignment. He did not have the ability to stabilize the rifle properly using his body and his core. None of these things that you train on the range were there. Um, And quite possibly, how could you train to fall on your back, get hit in the head with a skateboard, and then shoot up at probably pretty close to a 45 degree angle on what range can you live fire a 45 degree angle right um you can do some of this in ammunition work but even then um that gets pretty sketchy when you're shooting up at a 45 degree angle at somebody that of course they're wearing protective gear but it's very easy to to get the bottom of the chin or get the you know that's there's a danger situation there you yep. really shouldn't allow it go on as a, as an instructor right um so there's no way to really train that kind of stuff. Um, and he, and here's this 17 year old kid without years of experience and all of this. And he's exhibiting the ability to in the moment under the heat of pressure and life and death situation, um, exhibit creative creativity. And there was probably some destruction going on there. In other words, so an example of destruction would be, um, you say that you're getting, you're getting attacked um, let's say you're getting attacked in, in a parking lot somewhere. Now your whole life, you, you may carry a gun and you might think I'm prepared, but in reality, it way down deep in yourself, you've always been telling yourself that it's never going to happen to you. Right. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. Right. Like, it, and there's a lot of people like that. Like most of us probably listening to this and, you know, are not like that, but a lot of people carry a gun and they're like, it's never going to happen. I'm just have the gun just in case, you know, even if you train, you still might tell yourself this at a very deep level. And really, honestly, that's what you truly believe. When the attack happens, there's going to have to be a destruction of that belief before you can proceed. Because if you currently believe that, then you're going to sit there and do the, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening thing or the, just general disbelief and and freeze component because I had an idea in my head of how the world was and suddenly bang, the world's not like that anymore. And so 
what do I do? Right. So that's where destruction and creation come into play in the decision making process. And synthesis is where that happens at. Like we observe things, we analyze it, and then we synthesize that information uh, into a new a new solution or a new paradigm or new perspective and and we act on that through through decisions right um and i i think that's that's like the best way i can think of when we talk about uh, observational analysis synthesis and the creativity and destruction part of that process mm. no that's really that's and that's an excellent example uh for you to as you mentioned uh, you weren't going to get into it necessarily by uh, uh, in in terms of the specifics, but the the whole case out of Wisconsin is a really really interesting one that you brought up uh, as an example of that. Um, <clears throat> to your point of what you were just kind of touching on, I mean uh, the, the the idea that some people, a lot of people, are going to have the preconceived notion that well, this is never going to happen to me, but I'm carrying my gun just in case. I do X Y Z thing just in case, but. I don't really believe that's ever going to happen to me because I live in a good neighborhood. I was brought up, you know, in a good way. I associate with good people. I don't go, you know, to stupid places with stupid people at stupid times of the day and do stupid things. Uh, so, you know, like my risk is low and that, you know, this kind of thing's not going to happen to me. Um, that you have this whole section of your book called operating inward and and a good chunk of that is is uh you know talk about this concept of the stories we tell ourselves and i found that whole section very 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 interesting uh i was wondering if you'd expound on that a little bit and, and kind of give us some more examples of what some of these stories are that we tell ourselves and some of the uh the challenges that presents so everybody is is living out some version of some story that they're telling themselves about who they are. Right. And it's almost a, a, a necessary component of human life, like of, of human um, cognitive existence is to be able to have a sense of self, right? You have to have a sense of self and it has to be a strong sense. Like, cause if there's a disconnectedness in the sense of self, then there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, psychosis that stems from that, right? So, yeah, and we know this, right? So there can't. So the fundamental part of mental health is having a connectedness with the self and understanding, you know, a, a self-image that's um, hopefully healthy, but it's not always the case. Uh, and I think that there are there are simple examples of this, and I'm I'm I've been a long time fan of Carl Jung and his work with archetypal psychology and things like that. Mm. I really believe um, wholeheartedly in the power of, of archetypes and, and it's evidence throughout society everywhere in the use of archetypes, especially in warrior cultures, you know, since the dawn of time that we've had recorded history. So if we look at say um, a very simple example right uh you've got a modern um person who considers himself a warrior you know they could be the sheep dogger or it could be like you know whoever it's just uh someone that's not actually doing a lot of fighting or any fighting or has any experience doing any real violence but they consider themselves to be a warrior and they train they work out they shoot 
Uh, they do all the requisite things. They have um, the samurai guy tattooed on their forearm, like in their, you know, they believe in Bushido and, and you know, the codes of honor of warriors and like all this in the Stoics. And this is the stuff we see just nonstop over and over within this space that we're in. Um, Spartan helmets and the Spartan lifestyle and the, you know, in that's they're drawing from that in in creating that to be part of their own story they, they they're attaching themselves to that lineage or that story to draw some power from that right and that there is legitimate power in doing that right and i witnessed this in prison I, as i explained in the book prison is very segregated uh, environment and it operates in a in a very uh, orderly fashion due to being segregated in such a way and one of the interesting things is to watch how each of the individual races will pull from warrior cultures that are in some way connected to that race of people right and so the blacks would uh, talk about being a zulu right i'm a zulu and uh, uh, this great Zulu warriors and they pull from that power and pull from that image and bring that, they would bring that in line with themselves and put themselves in line with that at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're creating this self image, this self story, and they're telling themselves, this is who I am. I'm one of these, I'm from the same blood. I'm built, you know, of the same cloth. Um, and that is, is a legitimate thing. If you get someone that truly believes that they can be quite a, you know, a formidable enemy if you ever have to face them because they're believing some pretty powerful stuff psychologically. Right. Uh, and this is, you know, it's, and this is a very elementary example of it, but it's, I think it's a lot more complex, suppressed and concealed in, in society out in, you know, free society. Well, I would argue it's not free society, but that's another topic for another day. <laughs> um, out in society, right? So when we're out in the world living our lives, it, you know, when we're going to jobs and living. So you're not like living in most people are not in this like hostile environment where you get to act out and have such overt beliefs that seem wild or, you know, aggressive or extreme. Um, I think that people have those in different degrees and they suppress it uh according to how much they think they can get away with right so you get guys that are um just over the top like gigantic lifted diesel truck with this you know 18 inch tailpipe and ar-15 stickers all over the back of it and you know like and they're like really projecting that thing um and then you get guys all the way at the other end of the spectrum who may believe it but they're more subdued and more covert about it um everybody some point in time somewhere has told themselves a story about who they are and they're trying their best to live that story and make other people believe it. Um, now it can be a genuine story. You can be in touch with who you really are and just be like a regular dude. That's just trying to live your life or whatever. Or you can have a full BS story that is just completely constructed of things that aren't even close to being true. And you've made yourself believe it. And you might even be able to pull off making other people believe, especially with Instagram. You know, because you can you can uh, curate your um, output so well on social media that you can now create these stories that <laughs> you have ten thousand people that follow you that actually believe it. You know, so yeah. um, I think that that's the 
that's the fundamental understanding of it. But the importance of it, why we need to understand it is when you start to look at stories, you start to understand how important and, and fundamental culture and value inputs and experiences are to those stories. And so when you start to try to understand cultures and, and value inputs and things like that coming from different people, you gain an insight into how people operate and how they you know view the world and things like that. And now we're getting a picture of uh, the orientation of the other person. Um, and if you can determine the story a person is telling themselves, you can now play into that story and manipulate that situation appropriately. Um, and what I mean by that is if it's a emerging, possibly violent or aggressive situation, if you can properly read that person's story and then either play the part that they, that they want you to think you are in, in that, right? So if they're aggressive, they want you to cower and like, you know, be scared or be uncomfortable there in your presence. And if you want to launch a, a really significant counter ambush, then sometimes playing that part is going to draw them in closer. And then you unleash an un, un, you know, unbelievable level of violence that they weren't prepared for. Uh, on the other hand, you might be able to take that in a different direction and play into the story as an equal or a peer and, uh, and discuss things with them that only equals and peers would know, which I demonstrate one of those stories in the book about the guy in the park. Um, one con take talking to another con a felon talking to another felon mm -hmm. right? um and that's not who he thought he rolled up on so his story about who i was was not correct and i corrected him and so now our stories all of a sudden didn't line up with what his original plans were and so now you have to change his plans right um yep. so better understanding the stories that someone's telling themselves is uh is really the key to communication like and if you have if you're married, you know, your wife is telling herself a story about who she is and about who you are. And if you don't understand that, you're going to have a really hard time in, in your daily home life, right? Like you, you got to understand who you are, what you're telling yourself, what's real, what's not real, what's fabricated, and then deal with that internally, get your story straightened out to where you think you're in a genuine state of, you know, of existence. And then turn around and try to look at what other people are telling themselves about who they are and how they think you fit into that story. And now you can, you know, you gain the keys of, um, I like to put it like you get the keys to their emotions and their decision-making process. The, the, if you go deep enough into that story, because you can now manipulate the process uh, and the transaction between the both of you, if you understand that, you can change the way they think about something by changing components of the story to be something they didn't expect or to be something they expected. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, what's so fascinating about, like I said, that, that the whole section of that book about what the, some of these different stories are and might be and um, how we might try to understand what someone else's story is. Uh, to uh, use that to our advantage and, and perhaps to their disadvantage if possible, if need be, uh, is that the, as I, as I, as the, my takeaway from all this is that the place to interrupt something before it even turns into violence is 
it's like that story you mentioned of the guy in the park is before they can even get to like, if you're already engaged in the act of violence and you, you missed a huge opportunity to interrupt not, I mean, it's, it's not just about your own orientation, like, but to interrupt their orientation to the whole situation and head the whole thing off before it even kicks off. Is yeah. that kind of, I mean, is that, that, that that's a piece of all this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm really big on avoidance and that's primarily what I teach is avoidance. You know, um, that's why I always get a kick out of people that, you know, you know, attack me on the internet and say, um, you know, are you, you think you're extreme and like, and it's like, listen, if you actually read what I'm saying and actually listen to what I'm saying, 90% of what I talk about is about avoiding situations because it's destructive and damaging. And I happen to be an example of someone that has suffered extreme, um, consequences and, and to this day, you know, traumatic, um, events have just left their mark on me in ways that affect my financial life, affect my, my, my mental well-being, affect my sleep, affect my ability to make decisions about normal things in society that will cause me to have anxiety. And a normal person that hasn't had that kind of trauma would look at that and be like, oh, it's just a walk on the beach. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, there could be this, there could be that, there's going to be an earthquake, it could be a tsunami, it could be a shooter, you know because your brain is just so fixated on negative outcomes because you've experienced so many negative outcomes. Right. Mm. And so that's the reality of, of me talking to all of you is saying, look, what's on the other side of this thing I'm describing to you is terrible. And it's, I know people glorify it and make it seem awesome because they're like, you know, badass face shooters and stuff like that. But trust me, those people struggle with alcoholism and mental health and PTSD more than you want to, right? So if you want to be like a hardcore badass face shooter, just know you're signing up for all that part too, right? Yeah. It's, that's that's going to be a part of it. So avoidance is like the way to not have to deal with any of that, to not have to get denied, you know, places to rent or jobs because you've got a felony conviction on your record now um, or, you know, or you have a successful defense, but you've killed a person and you find out, wow, what a shock that a lot of employers don't really want a person who's killed a person to work for them. That's something that I'd never considered, right? Mm -hmm. But it's absolutely true, you know? So it doesn't matter whether you win or lose physically, you know, uh, you know, or, or legally, the, the consequences are going to be there, you know? So avoidance is the, the big picture and this, the, all of these things I talk about orientation and um, storytelling and all, you know, intuition and, and instinct, all these things are all part of how to manipulate situations for the purpose of avoiding it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we're kind of down to, uh, to the, to the end of an hour here. And so I appreciate your time so much, uh, Varg. Uh, but uh, one thing I do want to mention folks, if, if you've enjoyed this conversation here today in this episode, uh, for Guardian Nation members, Varga is going to be our monthly, our, our, our November guest on our monthly Guardian Nation member broadcast. We call those GN Lives, uh, GN Lives. So uh, that'll be November 17th in two weeks from today uh, as of the recording of this. So November 17th, that's a Wednesday evening, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. 
And we're going to have Varg back and together with uh, GN members uh, viewing, we'll be able to dig a little bit deeper on some of these things. And also uh, a big piece of that is for members to be able to ask their own questions directly uh, to, uh, to, to Varg. So um, just uh, know that that's coming up, folks. If you're a member or if you want to consider joining uh, the membership, uh, feel free to do so. GuardianNation.com is the place. And, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you all uh, part of that live broadcast with Varg in two weeks. Um, but the one thing, I, the last thing I wanted to ask you about Varg is, um, I was hoping that you would uh, touch a little bit on perception, um, its importance, how it plays into all of this and, and how we can manage perception. I know that we can go obviously really deep on even that, but, uh, in the context of, a lot of the other things we've t- we've touched on here today. I uh, just kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about where perception plays into all of this. Um, perception is a two way street. So you've you've got perception on your end of a situation, and you've got perception on other people's end of the situation. Um, when I talk about perception management, obviously the two things that you need to be concerned with about perception management are: is your perception being managed? Um, which by the way, if you watch corporate news or listen to anything that, you know, is put out by corporations, I think that you definitely should know what perception management is and how it affects you, uh, is your ability to manage other people's perceptions actually something you can manipulate, right? So you have, you have, first of all, the situation of like let's look at concealment, right? So a lot of people talk about concealment of a weapon. There's, there's more to just hiding and not printing. There's concealing of intentions, tools, and capabilities. That's, that's true concealment. The field craft of concealment is actually perception management, right? You're managing the perceptions of people around you. Um, how you want to look, what story you're telling yourself does not have to be the story you project into the world. And that's one of the revelations of, uh, of a, of a true practitioner, right? You, you start to understand that, okay, I can manipulate the other people's perception of me. And a lot of people do this because, you know, you, if you, especially if you've been, if you've been in dating or you've been an employer and interviewed people, uh, when you first get them, they're the most amazing people on the face of the earth. And then the next thing you know, three months in or three years in, and you've got a completely different animal on your hands. So uh, your perception was managed uh, <laughs> at the beginning of that situation. So the the perception is, first of all, manageable. It's, man, it's, it's, it's able to be manipulated. Your ability to manipulate other people's perceptions is, um, it can be very high. And again, I just, I, I, refrain from making like you know obvious um um references to to current events in society but it's really there like you you, you're if you watch a certain thing and you have an emotional response to it um and if you listen to certain people talk and you get angry at certain subjects this like you have been told to be angry about a thing and now you're doing it right like if you listen to an input and you have an emotional reaction, that's when you need to step back and say, okay, I'm having an emotional reaction to this input. Is that input designed to create this emotional reaction in me? That is the question I need to answer first. Um, and then 
the other question is how do I design inputs for other people to cause the desired emotional reactions in them in a given situation? This is not being devious or deceitful or negative in, in, in uh, an overall, you know, perspective. It's just, it is what it is. It's a tool. It's, it's in, in, in a violent or possibly aggressive situation, your ability to cause emotional responses in other people is going to be very important, you know, and de-escalation is, is causing an emotional response or should hopefully, if it's effective, cause an emotional response to lower the other person down uh, and bring them into another condition. Right. And so your ability to manipulate that person's perception is really the, the core of that. That's mm-hmm. the, that's going to be the baseline um, and understanding where your position is being manipulated by your perceptions and your inputs and you're taking positions on things and you're just like it's it's so bizarre to watch people that it, it, you know it, you look at it like a, a given like a given uh side of the of a certain argument in society right and they'll all everything from like the the politicians to the news to the people on the street will be saying verbatim the same exact words almost yeah. like verbatim you know and it's like at that point you need to step back and say whoa man i'm being um programmed to say certain things here at this point and that's why you know as a as a as a felon as a convict someone who's been in prison you recognize when someone you try to recognize when someone's running game on you, trying to manipulate your emotions or manipulate your feelings or your perception of the situation. I talk about that very deeply in the book about ways that convicts would do that to new to new inmates. Um, because there's a difference between a convict and an inmate. Inmate isn't a convict yet. And so it, it, it in a slang sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when convicts would get a hold of new inmates, you know, they would manage your perception of the whole um of the whole prison environment and they would manage their impression of that person in particular. And then they would create situations which would extract money or extract, you know, sex or whatever it was they were trying to take from the person. Um, and right. you recognize those patterns, you recognize those things, and then you gain those tools for yourself to use to get yourself out of trouble. And the way that I describe it, the way that I'll conclude that is all of these things are just tools they're not good or bad you can look at them like you gain superpowers and you you use them for righteousness good things you know you, you want to do good things to good people or you you do evil things and you hurt people like that's a personal choice right but the tool itself is not it's just like a gun sitting in the corner until someone picks it up and does something with it it's an it's an inanimate object that has capabilities that are used for either good or bad, right? And the same thing with these tools. Um, so, you know, don't, don't think about them in negative terms, like you're being deceitful and you're just becoming a, you know, and you have to keep yourself in check. And I think once you gain the power of these tools, that's when you really find out what your moral character is really made of. Hmm. That's good stuff, man. Um, and I, judging by some of the comments that have been coming in this, during this last little uh, part here, I think other people are, you're, you're wetting their appetite. You're getting the, the brain, you know, juices flowing and, and uh, they're, they're pondering and thinking about these things. Um, I was just thinking, 
you know, a little bit too, as you were explaining some of that. And actually there's a comment here from Matthew on YouTube. He says, uh, this part reminded him of the movie of a history of violence. The main character appeared the whole time to be a small town restaurant owner until something happened. And then he revealed another side. Uh, so just an example of, of, you know, projecting yourself as one thing, you know, this perception management of how others view you, but, uh, but the but what you know about yourself being, you know, your, your own reality being uh, uh, different. And I was just thinking that that really kind of embodies uh, the uh, kind of the warrior gardener attitude anyway, to some degree, you know, the warrior that uh, certainly has the skills and the training and the background to, to be a warrior if needed to be. But at the same time, like day to day and like the, the outward, uh, perception that others may have of him is, well, that's just the old man working in his garden, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, uh, um, anyway, I don't know. That's kind of, that was just the thought that came to my mind as you were talking about some of that really good stuff, man. Uh, I wish, you know, we could go longer. Um, but, uh, as is usually the case with such things and conversations like this, but I really appreciate your time on the concealed carry podcast today. Um, uh, before we let you go, uh, I mean, your website is vargfreeborn.com, but I uh, just want to give you an opportunity for any last words or if there's any other, you know, whether it's a, a something promotional or other places for people to find you, social media, anything like that. If there's any last words or shout outs you want to make, uh, now would be the time. Yes, I'm not incredibly um, active on social media. Mm-hmm. I don't post a lot of things and I don't post things relevant to this this material very often anymore. Um, I have a blog on my website that has been popular with a lot of people, but I don't always talk about this. Sometimes I talk about building choppers or, you know, dealing with toxic people or stuff like that. Um, my classes and teaching has been uh, kind of on a, a hiatus here. And a couple of reasons for that, I uh, just moved. So now I'm in Daytona Beach, Florida. Um, and this is a, a great location. It's it's super cool. I just set up this new office. I have new capabilities like a- internet that actually works, so <laughs> I can start doing some content. I was way out in the country, like I had to take two dirt roads to get to where I was living, you know. And and there the internet was like, I was like point eight megs um, upload speed, you know. And <laughs> it was, so there was no video content going up. So yeah. now hopefully I'll I'll have more content, and I'm planning some very cool things for. Um, for the upcoming um, year, hopefully. Um, and I, I do want to put together a facility down here that's on my long-term goal. Uh, so I've kind of shifted my attention from, you know, working so much with hosted places around the country to more of just kind of putting my own thing together and um, being very selective about who I work with anymore mm. uh, because the industry has just overloaded me with um, things that I just can't really stomach that much anymore. Yeah. So I try to separate and, um, but vargfreeborn.com is like the, if you need to get a hold of me, you can send me an email. I have a backlog of emails right now that I'm trying to get to because for five weeks I was moving and there was no email answering going on during that whole time. Uh, so if you've emailed me, I'm not an ass, you know, I didn't just ignore you. Like it's there, I'm going to get to it. Um, but just check me out and watch for things to come up after the after the new year turns and new content content to start rolling out and then i'll 
clue you guys in on what I got planned. But until then, I'm just back here working quietly, trying to put things together. Awesome. Awesome. So folks, uh, head on over to vargfreeborn.com. Uh, as you mentioned, check out his blog. Uh, you'll also see there's a link for books and podcasts and videos. Uh, I, I would encourage you to, if you don't already have a copy, uh, get a copy of uh, Violence of Mind and uh, Beyond Uda. Um, I can't recommend those books highly enough. I've read Violence of Mind a couple of times now, and I'm probably about to start reading Beyond Uda again. Uh, which just came out, what, back in August, I think, or thereabouts. So fairly new book. And uh, I'll tell you, when I want to already reread something that shortly after I read it once, um, that, that should be telling, at least to some some people that care, I guess. So thanks again for your time, Varg. We appreciate it. And we look forward to connecting again on the 17th of this month. Cool. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So folks, we're going to let you go. And until next time, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Mm-hmm.